honor the Word of God. We, we reverence the preaching of God's Word. And one of the ways that we do that is, is by not making a lot of movement. So all cell phones need to be turned off. Uh, when we come in and we hear the Word of God, it should be a time where there's not a lot of getting up and down. Uh, going downstairs, coming back upstairs, going downstairs. We understand that there are emergencies at time. By the way, during the break time is a great time if you need to use the facilities or, or something else. We understand at times kids need to be taken out. But we want to have an atmosphere here in this, in this church that when it comes to the service... And it's this again. Thank you. Okay, we're going to go ahead and start from the beginning. No, just... All right, is that better? Okay, good. 
Now, we've been talking here about the sudden movement of God, the fact that God moves suddenly. There are times when he works in the ordinary, and someone might say, well, every time God works, it's special and spectacular and it's, it's supernatural. Well, in a sense, yes, it's always supernatural. We would agree with that. He's always working in his providential ways. But there are times in history when God comes in great power and awakens people. And if there's anything that we need today in this country, it's an awakening. We are dead in our sins. There are so many people, millions, and we're not even talking thousands, we are talking millions upon millions of people who have rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not that many are out there just going, hey, we, we long to hear, we've never heard this message. Many have heard the message and say, we're not interested. We're not interested. And our churches need a revival where God's people come back and receive the refreshing renewal of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing like the movement of the Holy Spirit. And we live in a day and age when people are longing to actually see God move. We don't need just another lesson. Do you realize how many shows on TV are about the supernatural? How many shows are about witchcraft and mediums? I mean, they're, they're everywhere. And people are mesmerized with the supernatural. People are, are mesmerized with, with the spirit world. And when we come into church, there should be a sense that we don't leave the spirit world and now we go into the dry, dead religion, but we come in and we experience the, the living Holy Spirit who is powerful and is greater and sovereign over every dark spirit that exists. And if there's anything needed today, it's people not just knowing about God, but experiencing the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And my question to you this morning is not just have you heard about God, but have you actually experienced His power? And if you say, well, I think I've experienced His power, I know that I've been saved, so I've experienced His power, He's come to dwell with inside of me, that's wonderful, but it doesn't stop there. There should be a yearning of saying, God, fill me again with your Holy Spirit. God, give me a new encounter with you. And there are times in history when God comes in such undeniable power that people begin to get saved. People come to Christ in large numbers where the church gets awakened. You mean this isn't just about church, but the Holy Spirit comes in such a profound way with such effectiveness that people experience the joy and the love of Jesus Christ himself. And this is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Mark chapter 1. There was a very great sense of deadness. There was a sense of darkness. That's what the Bible proclaims about this time. And all of a sudden, at a point in history 2,000 years ago, God moved again. And that's what we're looking at. So why don't you open up your Bibles? We looked at last week the fact that there was a unique message. It was a message of repentance and how John was calling the people 
to repentance. He was not tickling people's ears, but he was talking about sin. Sin. And there is no way to experience the washing grace of God until we experience forgiveness. We, we love the message of forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. God forgives all who will come to him and repent. We, we love the fact that God forgives. But what we must understand this morning is that forgiveness is an audacious message. It's a message that is in our face. It's not sloppy agape, but it's, it's a message that comes to us and says, you need to be forgiven. We say we love that. We love that ring of forgiveness. But what forgiveness is actually saying to us is this. You're a sinner who needs to be forgiven. In other words, God doesn't just accept us as we are. We come to him as we are. But we come to him and he receives us when we repent of our sins. And it's not, it, it, it's not possible to experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. We want God's forgiveness. We say, oh, God, uh, God will forgive us. But God's forgiveness is not just his overlooking of our sins. It's not just him saying, well, I, I forgive you and you just continue on doing what you're doing. The reason forgiveness is such an audacious message is because forgiveness comes to us and says that in order to actually experience forgiveness, you must actually say, I'm a sinner who needs to be forgiven. We hear people all the time talk about being a forgiving person, being a forgiving person. Well, yes, we need to have a forgiving spirit, but there's no forgiveness until we're broken. And, and maybe you've been sitting here and you've been thinking to yourself, I want the forgiveness of God. I want to experience the love of God. But the question this morning is, have you gotten to a place where you've received the message of John the Baptist, where he was preaching a message of repentance, and as people would repent, then they would be baptized? It wasn't just come and let's just start dunking people and everything's good and we just go back. John was hacking down the weeds. He was clearing a path. And the way that he was clearing the path was actually communicating to the, the Israelites that there was a, a great need for, for forgiveness. And too often people are trying to experience the forgiveness of God without repentance. You will never experience the forgiveness of God without repentance. You will never know his grace in your life until you've been broken. You will never be able to say, God is my father, until there comes a time in your life when you're on your knees before him, saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've come to loathe my sin. We've done such an effective job in America 
of saying we're going to preach a message of forgiveness that doesn't talk about repentance. But there is no forgiveness without repentance. And so when we think of John, the reason we don't think of him as just some weak preacher or some preacher who just tickled people's ears is because he understood what message needed to be preached. But when a person is broken, truly, and they come before the Lord and they say, Lord, I'm not just saying a prayer, but, but tears are coming down the cheeks and they're saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. It's in that moment, it's in that place that God meets us. It's in that moment that we experience his grace. It's in that moment that we experience the tender mercy and the tender love of God. And so what we saw last week was that the message of John the Baptist in this Gospel of Mark was a spirit-anointed message as he was even filled with the spirit from the womb. And he was preaching a message that said, it's time to repent. How about you? How about you? Have you repented? I don't mean, have you just been conned into saying a prayer? I'm saying you're actually cut to the heart over your own sins. And you actually want to change. You actually want to receive the forgiveness of God. Now, it says in verse 4 that he was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. There it is, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now this exaggeration, this doesn't mean that every person in all of the region of Judea and every person in the whole city of Jerusalem was literally coming out to him, but what it does mean is this, that people were coming out to him in mass. Thousands of people were coming to him to listen to this message of repentance. And what's interesting is they would come from Jerusalem, which was on top of the hills, they would have to walk down the hills and the closest place where they could get to the Jordan was 20 miles away. So they come from Jerusalem, they're walking down the hills, or they're on horses or on donkeys. Uh, remember, there's no cars at this time. 20 miles was, was a walking or riding on an animal 20 miles, so this was not an easy trip. I mean, even 20 miles in a car Today, people don't drive 20 miles in a car to go to church. They were walking 20 miles at least just to get to hear him preach. And then they get to the Jordan River in the wilderness. And the Jordan today is even dirty. It's not a clean river. In fact, if you look it up and you see the river, it, it's, it's dirty, it's, it's brown, it's not crystal clear. In fact, there's a story of uh, Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5 where Elisha says to him to go dip in the river Jordan. And he says, why am I going to go dip in this dirty, dirty river when I could dip in my own home's rivers and they're much cleaner? 
So the picture is you have this group of people, thousands upon thousands of people, who are walking from the region of Judea and Jerusalem. They're walking down the hills to this dirty river where they're repenting of their sins. And then after they're listening to the message, they're turning back around to walk 20 miles back home in order to get to their place where they reside. This is not easy. But what it informs us is this, that the place doesn't matter much. That it's the person of God that matters. It's possible to go to a, to a temple. It's possible to go to a grand cathedral with beautiful paintings and with sculptures. It's possible to go into a church where a priest has all sorts of beautiful robes and a beautiful clothing, beautiful wardrobe. But here these people come, dressed in all different ways, rag-tag bunch of people who are traveling at least 20 miles to hear the word of God. Some of my most profound experiences in my life with the Lord have not been in beautiful cathedrals. It's not where there's wonderful paintings and we love wonderful paintings. It's not where there's marble sculptures and we're not against marble sculptures. It's not where there's holy water and people dressed in suits and ties. But some of the most profound experiences that I've had with the Lord are in regular places. I'll never forget when I was in high school and I was 17 years old. Our youth group took this, this trip uh, during the winter to a retreat. And, uh, and there we were listening to this preacher. All these teens, there's probably a few hundred teens are, are there listening to this preacher talk about the Lord. And his message that day wasn't very unique. I mean, it was on a pure heart. It was just about having a pure heart. And he was talking about how you could really experience God. And I won't go into all the details, but I'll never forget that at the end of that service, at the end of that sermon, that as I was walking up an aisle with people praying for all the youth on either side of this aisle, that the presence of God came upon me in such a profound way and I began to just break. And I, I began to bawl. And it was like the, the faucet of tears was just turned on. I couldn't stop crying. And I remember just saying, and it wasn't manipulated. No one was saying you had to do this. No one was hitting me on the head. Nothing like that was happening. And as I was walking down this aisle, weeping before the Lord, all I can remember saying is, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And as I got to the end of that aisle, the presence of God came in such a profound way, I couldn't stand anymore. I fell over. And I remember them carrying me over to the side and laying down in front of the altar area, and there was just praising the Lord, saying, Lord, I love you. It was, a, it was a marvelous experience. Never has happened again like that. 
And as I got up, I'll never forget going to the youth pastor, and I said to the youth pastor, I said, now I know what heaven is like. I know what it's like, and I can't wait to get there. Well, just a couple years ago, we had a district conference at that exact same place. And I hadn't been there for uh, a number of years, 18 years or so. And it was in a gymnasium. It wasn't in this beautiful cathedral. It wasn't in this spectacular religious setting. Never forget walking in there, now a little bit older, and remembering the exact place where God had ministered to my heart and in my life in such a profound way. But it wasn't the same. In fact, what became very clear was this. It wasn't the place. It was the fact that God had met me there. And this is what God is saying to us over and over again. He says to us, it's not about the place where you're going. It's not about how you dress. It's not about how, how the clergy look. It's not about if they're wearing suits and ties. It's not about if you go to a, a church dressed to the hilt. If that's what you like to do, that's fine. That's wonderful. But the question is, have we met God? It is possible to go to some of the most beautiful religious places in the world. And there's a sense of deadness there. You can have all sorts of religious relics. You can have statues, you can have paintings, wonderful, beautiful paintings. You can have murals on the walls. You can look up at the top of the ceiling and see all sorts of beautiful artwork, and you can marvel at all of it. But listen, if the presence of God is not ministering there, it all means nothing other than it's just beautiful. And so when we come to God, we recognize that it doesn't matter if it's in the wilderness where it's dry and dusty and predominantly uninhabited. It doesn't matter if it's a dirty river like the River Jordan. The question is, is have we met God? And what makes the place special is the person. And so we go back to these places and we don't just say, wow, this, this place is just special because the place is special. We come back and we say, this place is special because I met God here. I met God here. When I was, when I was a child, I can, I can still remember the atmosphere of certain services in certain places. Power, the power of the Holy Spirit. We could go back there to those same places today and they'd be nice and we'd look around and we'd say, this is a nice church or whatever. But those experiences are gone. Because what made it special was the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now God is calling Israel to a new exodus. He's saying to them, just like I had called you many, many years before from the nation of Egypt to, to leave Egypt and to go to the promised land, John the Baptist is calling these religious people in Israel and he is saying to them, it's time for a new exodus. It's not time to leave Egypt, but it's actually time to leave your religious system behind. 
It's time to leave thinking that it's the religion that's going to save you. It's not a matter if we're sitting in the temple in Jerusalem or not. The, the, the question that John is asking is, are you willing to give up all the religious stuff in order to come to the wilderness and make an exodus and leave all the religion behind for the person of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah? That's the question he's asking. And that's the same question he's asking people today. And you need to ask yourself that. Am I more enamored with religion or am I enamored with the person of Christ? Am I more into religion and the place of worship or am I more interested in the person of worship? That's the question. And sadly, you can flick on the TV and you can see all sorts of different religious services where it's more about the place than it is about the person. And there are many, 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 many people that are missing out on the power of the Holy Spirit, on a vibrant, living relationship with God because they're focused on all the exterior stuff. And Jesus comes along and he says, but I'm concerned about your heart. So notice here in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. And we're being baptized by him in this river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here they come out, they're making this journey, they recognize that it's worth it to go out, get your feet a little bit dirty. And they go out and they begin to confess their sins. There's a large response here. Thousands of people are responding. Thousands of people are confessing their sins. And we need to understand that people struggle with different sins. The sins that the person sitting next to you might struggle with are perhaps not the sins that you struggle with. But the question is, are we confessing our sins? And so we all recognize before the Lord that we're all fallen, that we've all fallen short of his glory. And some of us struggle with this, and some of us struggle with these kind of sins, and other people struggle with different sins. But the picture here is thousands of people going here to this river, and whatever sins that they have been committing, they are saying to the Lord, Lord, I repent. And I'm going to get ready for your coming. If you go to Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16, we see this in the scripture, Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. I said Exodus, let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus, we'll get to Exodus in just a second. Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 says this. God is saying this, and he says in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled 
and they make amends for their iniquity. God says if they'll come and they'll confess their sins, if they'll actually admit the fact that they've done wrong and that the person that they've sinned against is actually God, if they'll come before me, if they'll repent from a heart that's right, then he'll forgive them. Proverbs chapter 28, if you go over to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, Proverbs 28, and the verse 13 says this, Proverbs 28, verse 13, says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The person that is forgiven is the person that's not consumed about the place the person that's forgiven is the person that comes to the Lord and says, I need to repent of my sins. How about you? Have you come to the Lord and said, Lord, there are sins that are keeping me from you? God, this morning, instead of just saying, I'm going to just try to somehow experience your forgiveness without actually confessing my sins. God, I come before you. And instead of concealing or trying to hide my sins from you, Lord, I bow before you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. The wonderful thing is this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The person who actually comes and repents of their sins will be forgiven and will obtain mercy, the scripture says. But the person who hardens his heart and says, no, I don't want to have a right relationship with God. This is not about me repenting. I'll make this about religion. I'll make this about the place. That person, the Bible says, God will oppose. Well, here's the end of this message as far as repentance goes thousands of people are coming to john but something happens tens of thousands are coming to him they're making a journey they're going down these hills being baptized coming back up the hills and yet what we find in acts is something that's rather astounding after all of these people are responding, I want you to flip with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 verse 15. Acts chapter 1. Verse 15 says this. In those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. Now, here's, here's the key. Notice, notice what it says next, and your Bible might have parentheses there. It says, the company of persons was about how many? 120. Now, you think about this for just a second. John was preaching a baptism of repentance 
The Bible wants us to get this clear picture in our head that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem is going to him. You have thousands upon thousands of people going to him. And yet you come to the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 1. And the picture in Mark is painted for us so that we have this in our mind very clearly. Thousands are responding. And yet you come to Acts chapter 1, and there's 120 in this room. In fact, you could fit them all in there. What a different picture. Thousands had responded here. You go through the ministry, the rest of the ministry of John the Baptist. You go through the ministry of Jesus Christ. You come to the end of it, and now you're in this same region, in this same place, and you have 120 left. And the question needs to be to us, what happened? How can you have thousands of people repenting, confessing their sins, and then you get to Acts chapter 1, and the whole group is whittled down to 120 people? The question to us is, where were they? Because the truth is you can have a spirit-anointed message, a sermon that is right on. You can even have it where it's about God, it's about the person of Jesus Christ, it's not about the place. And then you can even have a massive response. And all of a sudden, thousands of people disappear. What happened? Well, I think there's two reasons, and we're, we're going to close with this. But the first reason is that the people were hearing the wrong message in their own minds. They were hearing something that was true, and John the Baptist's message was right on, but that's not what they were hearing. If you remember, the time was dark. Israel, for a large part, had become hardened. And all of a sudden, you have this preacher come, and he says, the Messiah is coming. And now people are beginning to listen. Did you hear this? There's this man out in the wilderness. He's preaching that the Messiah is coming right around the corner. Like, the Messiah is coming right around the corner? we got to go hear this. And so they come out and they're listening to this message. They're all fired up. They're all excited. They're, they're all enthusiastic. The Messiah's coming. The one that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, he's, he's finally here. He's about to step onto the scene. But what they were picturing in their mind was a political deliverer. What they were picturing in their mind was this Messiah who would come. That's right. But what they didn't understand was that this Messiah was not coming to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. This Messiah was coming to deliver them from their sins. And so they come and they hear, yes, we must repent of our sins. Sure, we'll do that. We'll repent of our sins. We'll say a prayer. Yes, we'll be baptized. We'll get dunked in water. And then all of a sudden, the Messiah appears. And he's not six feet three tan, and riding on a stallion. 
He doesn't come in and overthrow the Roman government. In fact, he doesn't even do anything with Pontius Pilate. He still remains in office. He doesn't do anything with Caesar. And as people are listening to his message, they're thinking, well, Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't have a three-piece suit. I, I mean, if we, if we were going to think of the Messiah, I mean, surely he would wear a robe and a collar. But he doesn't have a robe and he doesn't have a collar. He has a, he has a beard and he's, he's rather ordinary looking. And the message that he's preaching isn't one that if you come to me, I'll meet all of your instant gratification needs right now. You'll have a check in the mail. If you tithe 10%, you'll find that you'll be a millionaire by age 35. So I'm preaching that. He's not giving us three principles that if we splash holy water on ourselves, we'll be a smashing success. In fact, he's going around and he's healing the sick. He hangs out with sinners. He doesn't even have his PhD. And the guys that follow him are a ragtag bunch, fishermen. And so you go through the Gospels and you begin to see that this enthusiastic crowd that was waiting and anticipating something, their expectations were not met. And then when you get to John chapters 5 and 6, you see that people begin to leave him by the thousands. By the thousands. The question needs to be to us this morning because it's the same problem today. Are we hearing the right message in our own minds? I mean, we can, we can hear the truth, repent, believe. We can understand it's not about the place, it's about the person. We can even have thousands of people respond. But if all people are hearing is, just repent and believe and then you'll get whatever you want. Or repent and believe and your life will all of a sudden turn around and there's going to be no more problems in your life. Then you haven't heard the right message. And this is why we see many people today who are following messages that are easy to hear, but that don't change the heart. And this is the second reason. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet in power. And so these people were responding in the flesh, but they hadn't been cut to the heart. And if a person responds in flesh without actually being cut to the heart, it's only a matter of time before they say, you know what, never mind. You know what's interesting on the day of Pentecost? The scripture says that the spirit fell and thousands of people got saved. But what we don't read about is years later, all of a sudden, them falling away. In fact, you won't, you won't hear that at all. You don't hear a message being preached in Acts chapter 2. The, the, Peter gets up and delivers his message. The Holy Spirit falls. And all of a sudden, a few years later, people who have responded, they're all whittled down now to a group of 100 people or so. You don't hear that. Why? 
Because John understood something. John clearly understood something that we need to understand today. And that's why he said this. I come and preach to you a baptism of repentance. But listen carefully. But there's one who comes after me who's going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And there have been many, 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 many people today who are responding, but the Spirit of God has not gripped their heart. And if you ever wonder how people can say a prayer and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior only to two years walk away, it's because they've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's why. They've never been changed inwardly. And so John is out there preaching, and you get a very strong sense. He's not enamored by all the crowds. You get a very strong sense that as the crowds are coming, he, he knows. And Jesus would know afterwards, too, because he's God. And the Bible says he would read the hearts of men. In fact, it says, the scripture says to us that he would not entrust himself to anyone, for he knew the hearts of men. And so in the coming weeks, I can't wait until we get to what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But suffice it to say right now, the question to us is this. What have we heard? Have we heard a message that has actually gripped our heart and brought us to a place of worship of the Lord Jesus or have we accepted a message but done it superficially and in two years we're going to walk away because we've never really understood the anointing of the message, the fact that it's about a person and not a place, and a genuine response comes from a heart that genuinely repents. Would you pray with me? Father, we can, we can do all sorts of religious stuff. And God, the masses are enamored at religious ceremony and rituals. But God, when we look into the scriptures, we see something completely different. We see over and over again that you're calling people to a new exodus. To say, leave Egypt behind. And Lord, instead of calling us to a place that would instantly gratify all of our desires and all of our wishes, you call us to a place of wilderness. And Lord, you teach us in the wilderness that it's really all about you. It's not about ourselves. And God, we can either be like the hardened children of Israel who in the Old Testament scripture said, oh, we long for the meat that we ate in Egypt. Oh, we'd rather go back to Jerusalem and just worship at the physical temple for the rest of our lives. It's about the place. 
We miss the leeks and the onions and the, the, the garlic and all the stuff of Egypt. Or God, you can actually pierce our hearts and where we say, Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's a dirty river called Jordan or if it's a wilderness place where there's lots of shrubs and sand and dirt. God, it's really about you. And Lord, we ask you that you would cut to the heart this morning. We pray like that old song says, change our hearts, O God. Make us ever new. Change our hearts, O God. May we be like you. Create in us, we pray, a clean heart. And renew within us a right spirit. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. If you give us a couple minutes, if the band would come.